Thank you for listening to Blue Stocking, the podcast for people who love to learn, but don't always have time to study. This episode, I was inspired by a series of stories for the BBC by Kelly Grovier covering art history in seven colors, and also reminded of a book from one of my favorite authors, Sacre Bleu, by Christopher Moore. Funnily enough, today's word of the day on dictionary.com is also polychromatic, meaning multicolored. Kelly Grovier looks at how the color black was illuminated and concealed from early cave drawings to the square that hid a racist message for the BBC. Black is where art begins. From the moment mankind felt an urge to scrawl on walls, it reached for black. Analysis of early cave drawings reveals that our Paleolithic ancestors forged from fire the first tents, smelting from bone a charcoal pigment that gave art legs. Every subsequent application of black in cultural history echoes its ritualistic origins and resonates with a sense of resurgence, burnt skeletons into living symbol. From the smooth silhouettes of black figure pottery in ancient Greece to the dark enveloping veils of the Rothko Chapel three and a half millennia later, this anti-color has signified the transformation of fleeting flesh into enduring emblem. Unlike more emotive reds or somber blues, black is the default tone we give to words and fonts. It's a shade we read more than feel. Associated superficially with melancholy and mourning, the macabre and malevolence, black seals within itself an unexpected paradox of optimism. Every origin story from Genesis to the Big Bang is predicated on a pre-existing blackness as the foundation for the effulgence that follows. Black isn't simply where we start, it was before we started. Without black, neither the stars nor soul would have anything to kick against. The history of the word itself is telling and can be traced back to a Proto-Indo-European forebear, bleg, meaning flash, shine, and gleam. Black is thought to be a close cousin, too, of Latin flagare, to blaze or glow, though optically it may denote the complete absorption of light. On a profounder artistic level, black is hardwired for brilliance. Wherever we encounter black in art, we must look past what is said what is sad, sullen, or sinister on the surface, to a secret splendor glowing within. Ancient Egyptians were accustomed to such subtleties of insight, as is evident by the face of Anubis, the god responsible for ushering souls into the afterlife. Embalmer of the flesh and weigher of departing souls, Anubis was himself a hybrid being, a curious concoction of man and jackal, His canine head was invariably depicted by artists as the same gruesome obsidian that mortal flesh turns during the process of mummification, which Anubis oversaw. As any native of the Nile Valley would have also known, however, intense black is likewise the shade of the richest and most fertile silt. Anubis's black countenance looked, therefore, in two directions, towards the frailty of our skin and fecundity of the soil. In Western art, no artist more skillfully sculpted shape from shadow than Michelangelo Marisi de Caravaggio. 
the unremitting darkness from which his two versions of the Biblical Supper at Emmaus, 1601 and 1606, are chiseled to demonstrate a keen sensitivity to the mystical qualities of the color black. Both canvases imagine the instant when the resurrected Christ, traveling incognito, reveals himself to two of his oblivious disciples before dramatically disappearing from view. In both works, black sets the spiritual temperature of the extraordinary scene and thickens mysteriously into the semi-permeable veil between worlds that Christ alone traverses. In Caravaggio's imagination, the profounder the spiritual illumination, the blacker it burns, a slight of light and trick of the wrist he may have learned from his Italian Renaissance forebear and namesake Michelangelo Bunarati. Consider, for example, the ceiling frescoes of the Sistine Chapel, whose stirring effect does not rely so much on the merging of black pigment with wet plaster as it does on the gathering blackness of the space in which the frescoes are experienced. Choreographed to flicker in sync with the slow, extinguishing tenebrae candles during services held in Easter week, Michelangelo's frescoes, the first of which instructively depicts the separation of light from darkness, installed a vibrancy against which an almost palpable blackness pulsated. The lowering and lifting of blackness around believers was as integral to the power of the scheme as the jamboree of muscles Michelangelo made flex above them. Though Michelangelo and Caravaggio set the tint and tone for the myriad majesties of blackness that would follow them in Western art history, from the shade that shadows Rembrandt's piercing stare in his serial self-portraits, to the engrossing grotesquerie of Goya's black paintings, it is worth remembering that not every black hole is deep. Some may find it tough to stare squarely in the eye of American painter James McNeil Whistler's iconic sidelong portrait of his seated mother painted in 1871, knowing, as we do, the artist's penchant for racist remarks and his fondness for slapping abolitionists in the face. The artist, of course, shouldn't be tarred by the appalling allegiances of his brother, who wore the gray uniform of the Confederacy in its doomed efforts to perpetuate slavery, but the fact adds context. Whistler's mother herself, who once tried to stop the black wife of her uncle and their children from acquiring family land, makes an ironic subject for a painting whose official title, on reflection, feels more than a little racially charged. Arrangement in gray and black. But it is a painting from a subsequent generation of artists, Russian suprematist Kazimir Malevich's Black Square from 1915, often credited with being among the first abstract works ever painted, that reveals just how easily the color can curdle from soulful luminosity into something rather shadier. In 2015, fresh analysis of the celebrated work, which Malevich said signified where the true movement of being begins, traced the outlines of a barely visible, bigoted quip scrawled by the artist beneath the varnish. The lurking words, Battle of the Negroes, too gutless to show their face in full view, are thought to be an allusion to a racist phrase Negroes Battling at Night, used by a French humorist for an 1897 cartoon of a black square. 
With that disappointing discovery, which succeeded in recontextualizing the work from pioneering masterpiece to appalling misadventure, the inner light of a painting that had for decades been the source of meaningful meditation suddenly went out. In more recent years, the dark way lit by the black light of Anubis and Caravaggio, Michelangelo and Rembrandt has been kept gleaming been kept gleaming by the genius of American multimedia maestro Carol Walker and British artist Mark Alexander. Walker's stark cutouts have, since the 1990s, and her mesmerizing mural Gone, an historical romance of a civil war as it occurred between the dusky thighs of one young negress and her heart from 1994, shown a penetrating light on prejudice and misogyny when many in the mainstream art world preferred to keep such issues in the dark. Alexander's smoldering reinvention of Vincent van Gogh's poignant portrait of his physician, Dr. Gachet, which incidentally has not been seen in public since its owner, the Japanese businessman Ryoi Saito, who died in 1996, threatened to be cremated with the post-impressionist canvas, is a masterclass in Black's enduring capacity to resurrect the spirit of physical loss. The eerie Blacker Gachet from 2006 sees the artist's echoing hand rescue from oblivion every brushstroke of Van Gogh's original to sculpt a gaze that glows longingly from whatever undiscovered realm lies waiting for us in the great beyond. Side note. I think it is awful and selfish for someone to destroy a piece of art like that. Um, and there's a part of me that secretly hopes, or not so secretly, I guess, since I'm publishing it here, there's a part of me that hopes that that painting was stolen from him before he had a chance to carry out those wishes. But back to Grovier. If Walker and Alexander, as well as such contemporaries as Polish installationist Miroslav Balka and Indian sculptor Sheila Gauda, who have each constructed bold black interiors, are the truest heirs of a tradition that seeks to share the splendor of black, one artist has striven instead to stake a personal claim to the color's eternal mysteries. In 2014, Bombay-born British artist Anish Kapoor began experimenting with one of the darkest shades of black ever devised, a tint he tightly controls and has copyrighted under the trademark Vanta Black, coined from the acronym for Vertically Aligned Nanotube Arrays, which describes the substance's chemical construction. In optical terms, Vanta Black is ordinary black on steroids and creates within itself an innervating ricochet of light that, once trapped, eventually wearies itself out into invisible heat. With a proprietary claim on the use of Vanta Black, which was recently permitted to darken the walls of a Winter Olympics pavilion in Pyongyang, Kapoor has controversially appointed himself gatekeeper to at least one wing in the mansion of Black's timeless enigma, controlling what objects and images can ever be cloaked in it. But if the history of art has told us anything, Black is uncontainable as a cultural force. The deepest Black transcends the jealousies of intellectual property law. Black is the bright bloodline that runs through humanity the luminous ink in which we scrawl on the walls of the sky for our descendants to see. Don't forget me. I was here.
If you enjoyed that take on the color black, I highly encourage you to check out the link in the show notes to Kelly Grovier's website. You can check out his other works, including six other colors that cover the history of art for the BBC. It's a very good series of articles. And now, because I couldn't resist and I thought it was really clever to come up with the title Black and Blue, uh, some words from Sacre Bleu by Christopher Moore, starting with some quotes from Vincent van Gogh. I always feel like a traveler going somewhere toward some destination. If I sense that this destination doesn't in fact exist, that seems to me quite reasonable and very likely true. July 22nd, 1888. Well, I have risked my life for my work and it has cost me half my reason. July 23rd, 1890. And A Prelude in Blue from Sacre Blue by Christopher Moore. This is a story about the color blue. It may dodge and weave, hide and deceive, take you down paths of love and history and inspiration, but it's always about blue. How do you know when you think blue, when you say blue, that you are talking about the same blue as anyone else? You cannot get a grip on blue. Blue is the sky, the sea, a god's eye, a devil's tail, a birth, a strangulation, a virgin's cloak, a monkey's ass. It's a butterfly, a bird, a spicy joke, the saddest song, the brightest day. Blue is sly, slick. It slides into the room sideways, a slippery trickster. This is a story about the color blue, and like blue, there's nothing true about it. Blue is beauty, not truth. True blue is a ruse, a rhyme. It's there, then it's not. Blue is a deeply sneaky color. Even deep blue is shallow. Blue is glory and power, a wave, a particle, a vibration, a resonance, a spirit, a passion, a memory, a vanity, a metaphor, a dream. Blue is a simile. Blue, she is like a woman. Chapter 1. Wheatfield with Crows. Auvers, France, July 1890. On the day he was to be murdered, Vincent van Gogh encountered a gypsy on the cobbles outside the inn where he'd just eaten lunch. "'Big hat,' said the gypsy. Vincent paused and slung the easel from his shoulder. He tipped his yellow straw hat back. It was, indeed, big. "'Yes, madame,' he said. "'It serves to keep the sun out of my eyes while I work.' The gypsy, who was old and broken, but younger and less broken than she played, because no one gives a sansime to a fresh, unbroken beggar, rolled an umber eye to the sky over the Oise River Valley, where storm clouds boiled above the tile roofs of Pontoise, then spat at the painter's feet. "'There's no sun, Dutchman. It's going to rain.' "'Well, it will keep the rain out of my eyes just as well.' Vincent studied the gypsy's scarf, yellow with a border of green vines embroidered upon it. Her shawl and skirts, each a different color, spilled in a tattered rainbow to be muted under a layer of dust at her feet. He should paint her, perhaps, like Millet's peasants but with a brighter palette, have the figure stand out against the field. Monsieur Vincent, a young girl's voice. 
You should get to your painting before the storm comes. Adeline Riveau, the innkeeper's daughter, stood in, do in the doorway of the inn, holding a broom poised not for sweeping but for shooing troublesome gypsies. She was thirteen, blonde, and though she would be a beauty one day, now she was gloriously, heartbreakingly plain. Vincent had painted her portrait three times since he'd arrived in May, and the whole time she had flirted with him in the clumsy, awkward manner of a kitten batting at yarn before learning that its claws may actually draw blood. Just practicing, unless poor, tormented painters with one earlobe were suddenly becoming the rage among young girls. Vincent smiled, nodded to Adeline, picked up his easel and canvas, and walked around the corner, away from the river. The gypsy fell in beside him as he trudged up the hill past the walled gardens, toward the forest and fields above the village. "'I'm sorry, old mother, but I've not a sou to spare,' he said to the gypsy. "'I'll take the hat,' said the gypsy, "'and you can go back to your room, out of the storm, and make a picture of a vase of flowers.' "'And what will I get for my hat? Will you tell my future?' "'I'm not that kind of gypsy,' said the gypsy. "'Will you pose for a picture if I give you my hat?' "'I'm not that kind of gypsy either.' Vincent paused at the base of the steps that had been built into the hillside. "'What kind of gypsy are you, then?' he asked. "'The kind that needs a big yellow hat,' said the gypsy. She cackled, flashing her three teeth." Vincent smiled at the notion of anyone wanting anything that he had. He took off his hat and handed it to the old woman. He would buy another at market tomorrow. Theo had enclosed a fifty-franc note in his last letter, and there was some left. He wanted, no, needed, to paint these storm clouds before they dropped their burden. The gypsy examined the hat, plucked a strand of Vincent's red hair from the straw, and tucked it away into her skirts. She pulled the hat on right over her scarf and struck a pose, her hunchback suddenly straightening. "'Beautiful, no?' she said. "'Perhaps some flowers in the band,' said Vincent, thinking only of color, or a blue ribbon. The gypsy grinned. "'No, there was a fourth tooth there that he'd missed before.' "'Au revoir, madam.' He picked up his canvas and started up the stairs. "'I must paint while I can. It is all I have.' I'm not giving your hat back. Go with God, old mother. What happened to your ear, Dutchman? A woman bite it off. Something like that, said Vincent. He was halfway up the first of three flights of steps. An ear won't be enough for her. Go back to your room and paint a vase of flowers today. today. I thought you didn't tell futures. I didn't say I don't see futures, said the gypsy. I just don't tell them. If you'd like to hear more of that story or read more of that story, you can go to the link in the show notes and there's a place for you to read the first two chapters on Christopher Moore's blog. It's worth a look. It's great art history and also really funny and touching at times. If you enjoyed today's episode, please tell a friend. If you didn't, tell an enemy. And thank you for listening.